This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. Alan Farmer with you. On today's show, we were speaking to Ross Addison. He specialises in children and teen mental health. Anxiety on the rise in our young ones and especially coming out in social environments. Social anxiety, school avoidance. What are some of his top tips? And staying with kids, but slightly younger ones. Staying at home versus going to nursery. Some of the questions you need to ask yourself. The governess herself, Tammy Edwards, was with us in the studio. And we were asking, do you want to live forever? Ali Tarek is the founder and CEO of Five Score Labs, sharing his very personal health story and why it set him up to solving problems for other people too with supplementation. And it was, of course, pets and vets. We were taking you through with Dr. Camille everything you need to know about nutrition, about diet, about healthy treats and more. Plus, marking National Breastfeeding Week with an expert from Corniche Hospital. Talking mental health in children this half hour and on hand to help because parenting can be this incredible journey, but it's not without its challenges. And of course, there will, we can expect there to be times where our kids might feel stress or anxiety, but there is a tipping point where those typical day to day worries can venture into something more serious. And knowing how to help a child with anxiety and knowing when to step in isn't always clear. So joining us on the line now is Ross Addison, Managing Director and a Child and Adolescent CBT Therapist at Reverse Psychology. We're talking about exactly this, anxiety in kids. And I'm curious about boosting confidence in kids when we think about what can happen when anxiety is left untreated. Ross Addison, how are you? Yeah, I'm really good, thanks, Helen. How are you? I'm very well. I'm Increasingly concerned about this topic as a, as a mum, to be honest, because in some ways I think it's really positive that we're talking more and more about mental health in children. But I find it very hard to separate the facts. You know, are more children feeling anxious or are we just talking about it more and then we're getting a more, more diagnosis? So I'm, I'm curious to get your take in terms of what's coming into clinic and with your psychologist hat on, sure. do you feel like it is on the rise? Okay, so I think uh, as a parent myself of a relatively young child who's now three and a half, Mm -hmm. I think, you know, it kind of really bothers me as well from a parenting point of view, not just as a practitioner. Uh, I would certainly say that in the last, certainly since COVID, I can tell you that as a professional myself, I probably received 30 to 40% more referrals than I had done in previous years. Gosh. So it could be that, you know, in Dubai, we have a lot of psychologists, a lot of child therapists, but a lot of them are carrying waiting lists. Mm -hmm. So, of course, like the numbers of referrals do tend to go up. People go onto one person's waiting list whilst they're waiting for someone else to Mm -hmm. to perhaps have some space. But mental health concerns are certainly on the rise. I I don't think there's anyone practicing that would say otherwise. Oh, my my goodness. I mean, I think you you guys are some of the the busiest people in the city, uh, apart from the marriage counsellors. They're very busy. Yeah. Right now. Um, so can I, can I ask, about, and maybe that's relating to anxiety in kids, um, can I ask then about different types of anxiety? Are you able to identify, sure. you know, perhaps some specifics for us, Ross? Yeah, we do. So actually, like when we talk about anxiety, it's a really big umbrella term. And it doesn't really specifically kind of rule in or rule out any type of, of specific anxiety. So most commonly in children under 10 or under 11, it's, it had been previously separation anxiety. Mm-hmm. So, you know, safety and security concerns. It could be that a child faces difficulties in the dark, navigating the home independently, separations from mum or dad at school drop-off, that kind of thing. Or if parents go out for dinner and, you know, the, the child's at home with the nanny. That was always the under 10, under 11-year-olds. That's where if a child was coming to me for an anxiety-related concern, it was typically often related to separation anxiety. What I would say, probably in in, in the more recent two or three years, social anxiety has taken precedent. So social anxiety being fears and concerns related to judgment, so what other people think of us or making mistakes... Uh, being embarrassed or humiliated or doing something that's a little bit silly in front of others. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like up until probably two or three years ago, I would say the split between whether I was receiving referrals for separation anxiety, social anxiety, OCD, panic attacks, health anxiety, it was quite split. Mm -hmm. 
among all of them, you know. But nowadays, I would say probably 70 to 80% of all referrals coming in for an anxiety-related concern are they're, they're related to social anxiety. Gosh, that's really significant. Can I ask it's then? Huge change. It's, it's you know, it's very normal for a child to you know have some shyness or reluctance in a new situation. It's very normal for the, some of these some of these kind of friendship dynamics to get a little bit tricky as they get a little, a little bit older. But when would a parent need to call on a professional such as yourself? What are perhaps some of the red flags that this is starting to, yeah. you know, impinge on their their happiness and and day-to-day well-being and ability to navigate the world, the school, you know, those social situations? Okay, I would say so from the the young people that I meet with and the parents that come in, some of the the biggest red flags would be things like school refusal. Mm. So uh, it may be that they genuinely have an upset stomach or butterflies, but if it's anxiety-related, and it, it often, it quite often is, that school refusal or not wanting to go into school would be something that I would look at and think, OK, well, what's going on there? Is there something happening? And we're talking about over a sustained period. It's not just the odd morning. It's it's perhaps, you know, more mornings than not where you're having... And believe me, I've had the odd morning with mine and it is yeah. so distressing as a parent because it sets the tone for yeah. your whole day. You leave them upset. You feel like you're doing... the. It's It's awful. And to do that day yeah. in, day out is not just impacting the child, but the whole family... Completely, yeah. We're not we're not talking about one time in a month or one time in two months. Uh, you know, we're talking once a week, and I suppose Mondays would be a little bit of a flag. You know, if a child is reluctant to go in on a Monday in particular, and you're noticing some other anxiety-related tra- traits like sleeping difficulties or changes in appetite, or if perhaps they're trying to uh, withdraw or isolate themselves from doing extracurriculars. Mm-hmm. These would be other flags as well. You know, just this refusal to want to go into situations that they seemed very comfortable with. What I'm always looking at is, okay, is there an actual change in behavior here? Or is it just, you know, the young person is really tired or they didn't get a good sleep? Yeah, makes sense. But you tend to see patterns that emerge. If it's a regular occurrence on a Monday, I'd be thinking, okay, well, what's making the child worry a little bit about going in on a Monday? Mm-hmm. Why does having the weekend off, you know, set off? And it could be something anxiety related. It could be that they really just don't like the classes on a Monday. Interesting. If yeah, if there's other traits or other factors that seem to be present as well, you know, that you're identifying that, okay, this, my, my child's behavior has changed or it's changing. I'd be thinking, okay, let's explore a little bit more. Let's find out what's going on. Ross Addison staying with us. Um, He's the Managing Director and a Child and Adolescent CBT Therapist at Reverse Psychology. We are talking about anxiety in kids. Talking Children's Mental Health Day and every child experiences worry, even fear from time to time. This can be triggered by, well, watching a scary movie. Uh, studying for an exam. Um, We're talking about school avoidance, boosting confidence in that space this afternoon with Ross Addison, Managing Director and Child and Adolescent CBT Therapist at Reverse Psychology. Ross, we've had a number of messages for you. We're going to get the text line very soon indeed, but I just want to come back to what you were talking about earlier about that school avoidance. And I I wondered if you're able to offer a bit of insight into what might happen should you go and see a psychologist such as yourself. Could you demystify that for us a little bit, perhaps? Yeah, sure. What I would say is, so the first session, for example, so we call it a session, but it's always very, very easygoing. It's a bit more like a meet and a greet. So my position is always that, okay, the parent or the young person would benefit from coming, coming back to sessions to perhaps work on something. Let's make sure that in the first session, they get a really good experience from it. So I'll tend to start the first 15 minutes or so just getting to know the young person. Like, what do you like to do with your free time? What's fun? What do you do at home with your siblings? You know, how much do you argue? Like, very, very kind of general things. Uh, And then as we go through towards the end of the session, it's a little bit more funneled. So it's becoming a little bit more specific about, you know, is there anything you'd like to get some help with? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, if it's anxiety, you know, okay, if you're worrying about these things, would you like to not worry about them anymore? And if that's the case, why don't you, you know, come back next week and we try and chip away at some of these worries that you have. So it's, I would say it's a very kind of welcoming, certainly the first session. Yeah, Yeah, it is. I mean, depending on the age of the young person. So some 15 or 16 year olds will come in to see me and 
within five minutes, they're wanting to tell me what their worry is or what they're unhappy about. And they kind of want to get started as quick as possible. Mm -hmm. They're happy to really jump into it. I think it's a pretty amazing opportunity, really, to to talk to somebody. And I'm always a big advocate for anyone and everyone having some form of talk therapy because to have a conversation, to be able to offload your worries on someone who's got no agenda, no context really is... Is, is really, really powerful. And I think that teenage group is, probably needs it more than anybody. Um, I want to go to the text line. Um, a couple of anonymous messages. One saying, my son struggles to fall asleep every night. He's got a very active and thoughtful mind, but then struggles to get up for school as well. So I'm going to send this listener um, a sleep consultant's details because they're, they're fantastic on that. But any advice for calming perhaps an anxious mind for little ones? I don't know how old this child is before bedtime. Any yeah. quick tips there, Ross? There are. I think it's always about routine. So trying to establish that the child roughly goes to sleep or to bed at the same time each night is a really good way to to regulate their body and brain that sleep time is coming. Staying off devices, if possible, for up to an hour before bedtime so there's no screens. Uh, Shower 45 or so minutes before bed. This really helps to relax the mind. Uh, if you find that your child is having some worries and that is what's keeping them awake at night, mm-hmm. maybe an hour or so before bedtime, just get them to write a little bit in a journal if they can, or a worry box if they mm-hmm. don't like the idea of a journal. What you want to try and do is get some of those thoughts out to offload them so that the young person doesn't have to keep on thinking about them. Yeah. It's much like a shopping list. You go to a supermarket, <laughs> I you need, got a shopping list. <laughs> I need this advice. You're not thinking, <laughs> right, which aisle do I go down? Everything is much more ordered and clear. Mm-hmm. And the whole process of writing down the worries that we have even starts to help the processing of, of those worries. Uh, yeah, and I, just means we don't keep on thinking about them. I think also having those positive associations with bed and bedtime rather than it being something that you dread and something that you worry about because, you know, yeah. it can feel overwhelming of it being, you know, I'm certainly not saying about this family, but a place that you are sent when you're in trouble or, you know, bedtime is a punishment, you know, and making sure it's something you do look forward to. You know, you get to wear this and do that and read this. And, you know, I mean, my goodness, I can't I wait think, to go to bed tonight. <laughs> yeah, a lot of young people spend a lot, a lot of time in their bedrooms, mm. which doesn't create a really positive association with sleep. Because if you're spending, if they're spending a lot of time in their bedroom, they probably are doing a little bit of gaming, yeah. maybe homework, maybe some exercise. You want to try and keep the bedroom the place where the brain associates it with sleep. Good sleep hygiene. Yeah. All right. Exactly. Okay. I'm going to yeah. send this listener um, your details and that of Julie Mallon, who's a okay, great sleep sure. consultant in case it is a sleep disorder as such. But I'm sure between the two of you can get to the bottom of it. I'm not quite sure what I'm asking you, for, to be honest with you, Ross, in this message, because it's a big topic. But okay. the message around social anxiety leading to toxic masculinity and then anger and violence um it's a it's a teen boy who's got asperger's um who's turning to andrew tate and i wondered if this is something that you wouldn't mind speaking to and i ask you that as as a a father and a man and a psychologist is this something you've seen is it something you could help with it is, and it's something that's become, I would say, far more present in the last six to 12 months. Mm-hmm. Not just specifically about Andrew Tate, but certainly his name keeps on popping up more and more uh, on a, a weekly or, or fortnightly basis. I think, uh, you know, a lot of guys, young guys, boys, we don't talk about mental health enough amongst one another. Uh, and the whole concept of toxic masculinity is something that a lot of schools are pushing for talks in mm-hmm. at the moment because it is very, very present. And I think, um, you know, there are ways that boys and guys think they should act, think they should behave, how they should feel. And what it's leading to is more regressive mental health concerns are just becoming internalized. Mm-hmm. They go into the body, we push them down, and then eventually they're going to come out through things like anger, frustration or irritability. If we push our emotions down or try to bottle them up, eventually they're going to overspill. They just will. They'll come out. And I think, you know, a young person with Asperger's, it's going to be made a little bit more harder for him. You know, even if he is high functioning, it's going to make how he navigates the world or how he perceives the world much more challenging anyway. It will be littered with misconceptions, perhaps some misinterpretations as well. Uh, it's going to be really tricky. And mm-hmm. I think for, you know, people with Asperger's, and this is not to generalize, but they do tend to think in a little bit more of a black and white way mm-hmm. than perhaps, you know, uh, the uh, neurotypical population. Yeah. So I think hearing certain things, Im- imitating or mimicking certain people or things that they've seen online, it's going to be really, really present. 
Um, I've, I'm going to get in trouble for going over time, but I've just had a message from Nadia and it comes back to the mas- messages we've had earlier around school avoidance. A little boy okay. who's um, five um, and saying, I don't want to go to school anymore. He's had some difficulty in the last few weeks and lots of new things. They came up with a plan, did wonderful, even said he wanted to walk into the classroom alone and did smiling and waving. Okay. But since last week, he doesn't want to do this. He just wants to be with his mum. He was bullied before the half-term break and that was addressed to the teacher and we're not sure what's happened after that. Yeah. How to help. He refuses to do activities um, with the teacher, wants to do everything with his language teacher. Saw some improvement academic skills, but put, put, put the map plan in place, but now refuses to show that in school. Um, I just wondered if you had any specific advice for Nadia, but perhaps how explain a little bit how you work with schools, because it seems like it needs to be a bit of a, you know, a whole whole approach with family be. psychology yep. and school as well, perhaps. Absolutely. All interventions should be very, very collaborative, especially where there is a problem that's presenting at school. It's really important that the family, school, and if there is an external therapist involved, are all um, interacting together, to, you know, in the best interest of the young person. Mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, my advice would be, I mean, the school, I'm sure they're offering will be really willing to help in terms of, you know, okay, well, let's just get the child in for one hour a day for a week, you know, two weeks just a reduced timetable it's all about trying to create positive experiences that he's that he can have at school that he is having and at the moment it just sounds like he's just refusing it because he probably doesn't think it's going to be fun mm-hmm. or he's not going to enjoy it or there's some other kind of anxiety going on you know terrible shame about the bullying awful. that could easily have put him off as well you know he doesn't want to get back into that environment of course not but the school should be really really helpful and i'm sure that they would be more than willing to you know, meet the child at reception. Okay, they just go to an independent room, play for 20 minutes, then he goes home that day. Mm-hmm. It's all about building it up again. I think it's unrealistic to expect him to go into school this week or next week full time. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ross. We've run out of time, but I've, I've really, really enjoyed speaking so to you. I think, you've, I think you've made some of these concepts really clear, really accessible and um, hopefully helped a lot of people listening this afternoon. If anyone wants to seek your advice one-on-one, with your permission, can I send out your website to anyone that gets course, in touch? Please, okay. Please. Um, yeah. Ross Addison, it can be found there at Reverse Psychology. Ross, thank you so much for your time. We'd love to have you back and explore some of these topics relating to children and teens in particular. We are talking early years now, and one of the biggest decisions that parents can make in those first couple of years is when we're at work where are the kids going joining us to hold our hand on this topic is tammy edwards the founder of my governess she's got 13 years of experience in teaching and managing and opening nurseries in the uae and offers consultancy service around this topic and many others for parents right here in dubai so nice to have you with us how are you i'm good thank you now i struggled with this quite a lot um because it's such a personal decision. I feel like as soon as you get pregnant, everyone is judging you on your parenting choices. Like, are you having a nanny? Um, are you going back to work? Are you breastfeeding? And so it goes on. And this one is an expensive decision. So when we're thinking about advising families who are weighing up nurseries versus home, what are some of the questions that you ask as an expert in, in early years education, Tammy? I think one of the main ones is... Does your child want to go? Are they ready to go? Are you ready as a parent for your child to go to a nursery? And I'm here today because I have been approached so hundreds of parents in the last couple of months having this stress, having this anxiety. (gasps) My child's one and a half. They just turned one. They just turned two. They have to go to nursery school. I'm here to say they don't have to go to nursery school. This should be a really positive experience. This should be an experience that both of you want. But there are alternatives. You know, children are going to be in formal education for at least 14 years of their life, at least. Mm. They don't have to go when they turn one. They don't have to go when they turn two. You know, the UAE dictates that when you are four by the time in September, you should go to FS2 or KG1, depending on the curriculum you go to. But before that is optional. So when we're thinking about alternatives, what can be, what can that look like in practice, Tammy? 
As long as you're providing learning-rich environments, okay, you can provide a learning-rich environment from your house. That could be yourself being the educator and the facilitator. It could be your grandparents. It could be a nanny. Nannies are so capable, and this is why I actually started the company understanding this, especially through COVID, that nannies are capable and they can provide amazing, rich learning environments and activities for children. What about that social side? For me, the, I, I wasn't so bothered about them being kind of so-called school ready on the, you know, knowing their numbers and letters and all that carry on. It was more to do with being around other kids, being around kids who, you know, look different, behaved different, shared or didn't share differently, and those kind of social dynamics. How can you have that environment when you're not in that nursery space? Yeah, you're definitely right, Helen. I think that confidence and that social development are the two of the most important things of especially school readiness when you are going to school and there are ways that you can do that without going to a nursery school there are hundreds of different classes that you can go to for a nominal price you know my governess provides different classes within soft play areas we also provide and other places also provide things called structured play dates so if you don't have that transportation to get to different places but you do have a bubble of children within your community, we can have a qualified teacher that can come to your house. That's a great and idea. And still do little play dates. We bring a trolley of toys. We still have those circle times. We still have the sensory play. We still tick off all those boxes of all those different milestones that children need to need to learn before they go to school. But you can do it in your environment. Mm-hmm. And if you want your nanny or yourself to be present, that's fine. And when they get older, you can start taking a step back. And they get used to that teacher but it's a lot more in a flexible environment when you you mentioned earlier about is a child ready to go to nursery what are some of the signs that perhaps they might be really you know they might really thrive in that environment because it's so personal it's incredibly personal i i do feel that if if the parents are ready I do feel the children will be ready. <laughs> yes, there's often a, a lot of kind of wet-eyed parents dropping off kids and, you know... They're... And it's justified. Oh my these goodness, are I, your... I, cry, I cried these... in the car. <laughs> I, am, I am a massive advocate for nursery schools. I ran nursery schools and convinced parents to take their children to nursery for 13 years. I still am. You know, I love the benefits of nursery school, but sometimes children aren't ready and sometimes parents aren't ready. And mm. there's nothing wrong with that. We need to we need to make this aware that don't force your child to go don't, unless unless you desperately need it. And that's mm. your only option. Well, then the nursery will work with you and your child to make sure that they are OK. But if you don't feel ready, just wait. Um, Tammy, school assessments are ongoing Right now, I think last last month and next month, you said earlier. Um, what are schools looking for in those tiny tots for when oh, they bless join? Them. I they know. are so little when they have those assessments, two. aren't My they? My oldest daughter was, I think, two and a half when she had her assessment for the school she's yeah. at now. And my daughter's the youngest in her year. She's an oh. August baby and she started school September. So they're just so little. Some children only, you know, just turn two and they have the assessments. So... Every school is different and they have different little checklists. But I think the main thing that they're looking for, and number one, which is feared by a lot of people, is that potty training. Mm-hmm. Okay. And again, that potty training should be a really positive experience. It should not be that stressful experience. And sometimes it takes a few more months than it does for you, for, for others. Um, another thing that would be would have that confidence. Okay. They don't have to. They're not expected at two or two and a half to separate from their parents in a brand new environment. You were saying the other day your daughter was in tears. Oh, most people are in tears. Because you can't explain that to a child. You know, mummy's going to be back in 10 minutes because a two-year-old doesn't know what 10 minutes is. No, exactly. And I think most schools should understand that because they should understand the milestones of what's expected for a two and a half-year-old. And Mm -hmm. that is not one of them. Most schools will have in the first term in September, they'll have a really slow integration period. And that's what you need to look for in a school. And and I know it's inconvenient in the first week or two, but it is there for the children to gain their confidence with the new people in a new environment. Um, Tammy, we run out of time. I've had to ditch a song. (laughs) um, But I just wanted to lastly ask you about some of your consultancy services and how you are working with parents right now. And of course, to share your details, if you're happy to do that. Absolutely. So I run training and consultancy. That could be consultancy for parents to help them with 
all different topics ranging from birth up until five years old, uh, nanny trainings too. So that could be private or group nanny trainings or anything that you feel in your house that you need help with with your children or your housekeeper. What's the best way of getting in touch with you? Uh, email or WhatsApp or Instagram. Tell you what, if you send, when you send me the word child, I will send you Tammy's Instagram. You can contact her there. It's probably the, the easiest way for sharing contact details. Thank you so much. I Thank think, you so much, I Helen. really hope we've kind of put some parents' minds at ease and, you know, alleviate some guilt because, you know, my big parenting motto is great for you, not for me, but it's easier said than done when you start to doubt those decisions. So listening to your parental instinct understanding what you need what was best for your child it's um it's so so personal so thank you so much thank you tammy edward speaking to us from my governor's great to have you with us this afternoon we are asking do you want to live forever The human body has over 37 trillion cells. Now, imagine being able to keep those cells in the best shape possible throughout our lifetime. It's the point that maybe we wouldn't even age as quickly as we do right now. Is that really possible? One company thinks it is. Five Score Labs is the first homegrown longevity consumer brand here in the region, providing consumers with science-backed protocols and evidence-informed supplements. Now, I basically rattle with the number of tablets I take, but am I doing it right? We're joined now by the founder and CEO of Five Score Labs, Ali Tarek, in the studio, who I've been told is not 90 years old. (laughs) You're looking very well, Ali. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks for having me on. I am so interested in your personal interest in this, how this translates to us here in the UAE. Tell us a little bit about the brand and who was involved in co-founding with you from the science point of view, if you don't mind. Sure, absolutely. Um, You know, so the genesis of Five Score was really about three, three and a bit years ago now. Um, Incidentally, when we were under lockdown. Mm. Um, A lot of us thinking about our health at that time. Yeah, a lot of of us were. And I was in that fork in the road, um, just about to turn 40, um, in, you know, the worst shape of my life, quite frankly. Um, I, I don't want to dig, but I'm also very nosy. What do you, what do you define as the worst shape of your life? What did that look like, feel oh, like? Oh, well, you know, uh, I think simply put, you probably wouldn't have been able to recognize me. Um, I was 16 kilos heavier, Gosh. um, probably eating, you know, the worst sort of combination of foods, uh, and making poor dietary choices, um, lack of sleep and constant stress. Um, uh, and, you know, the, the combination of all that just really sort of weighs down on you as an individual. So taking a mental toll as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, and to be fair, I think a lot of a lot of us go through that. Um, you know, uh, a lot of the big international cities like Dubai, London, uh, New York, um, you're put through your paces every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very difficult to stay on top of a lot of what is important on a fundamental level. It is. People find different coping mechanisms and sometimes they work and sometimes we think they work, but they're not necessarily serving us. Where it gets tricky, though, is to break out the ones that aren't. And that can be really, really difficult to find that motivation or discipline, however you want to phrase it, because sometimes it's just not the, it's not the, it's not the easiest path is no, it? no. What, was there a turning point for you was there a kind of a moment of realization like this is this is not the road i want to go down yeah no you're, ab- you're absolutely right so um it's not the easiest decision decision to make um for anyone and for me it was a very personal um epiphany if you like um of waking up one day and just realizing that you know you're middle age and you just you just don't feel great. Don't uh, say we're middle-aged. I'm the same age as you. But you know what? If we live to our mid-80s, we are indeed middle-aged. We yeah. want to live longer than that, though, don't we? Um, or live well. Well, ex- than exactly. That. No, I'm, glad, I'm glad you used those terms. Um, so so back, back to uh, the genesis. So uh, we started this um, around the time of lockdown. That's when, you know, obviously uh, all of us had a lot of time on our hands to do uh, various things you can either sort of binge watch Netflix all day, or you can do something a bit more productive with your life. Um, I accidentally kind of fell into this um, 
arena of genomics um, and DNA. <laughs> How do you accidentally? Anyway, by the by, keep, keep going. No, so there's, if you, you know, it's funny, it's one of those things, it's only, you can only connect the dots when you, when you uh, sort of look back on your life. Um, but if you recall, there was all this excitement around uh, mRNA vaccines uh, and all the rest of it. Um, and I read this one book, it was Walter Isaacson's biography of Jennifer Doudna, and she won the Nobel Prize in 2024 inventing CRISPR, uh, which is just a gene editing technology. Um, anyway, so that was a fascinating book. Um, and that led me on to other books. Um, and it just so happened that I was going through this body transformation around the same time and mm-hmm. looking after my diet. Um, and, you know, this all came together. Um, and purely incidentally, uh, some of my best friends from university, people that I've known for 20, 30 years, um, were medical doctors in the field um, trained at McGill uh, and Harvard. Um, and it was one of those things where you just start talking and finding a mutual ground and interest. Um, and you just realize that it was something that needed to be done. It's got to be a better way. We're going to find out what happened next. Ali Tarek is in the studio. He's the founder, the CEO of Five Score Labs. It's all about a longevity revolution, increasing that human lifespan. But as I said, no one wants to be old and miserable and healthy. What is that better way? Finding out next. We're talking about raising awareness around human health and providing the how-to on increasing human lifespan now with the founder of Five Score Labs, Ali Tarek. Tell us about some of the research you were doing into longevity supplements. Where were they falling short, Ali? Sure, uh, that's a great question. Um, I should probably preface that uh, a little bit. Um, so whilst supplements are a useful tool in anyone's toolbox, um, you know, the two strongest sort of interventions you can do in your life to improve your longevity remain nutrition and exercise. What about genetics? Uh, excellent point. Um, <laughs> I'm just trying to relinquish some control. Like talk about how yeah, yeah, no, exercise yeah, I'm doing. So, you know, your genes are important in determining the course of your life. Um, But it's getting clearer that uh, 20% of your longevity is determined by your genetics. And the rest, say 70 to 80%, is around what you do uh, in your daily life, your, you know, how you impact your epigenetics, if you like. Can I ask about that food front? Yeah. You were talking earlier about how you were making what you kind of talked about, some not great food choices. To everyone listening today, if you could, you know, bestow some knowledge upon them what would you love people to introduce or remove or adjust in their diets with longevity as the goal sure um i think the first thing i would probably say is uh, or advise someone is to eat less um i think the reality of the situation is we live in an age of abundance uh, which is great in many ways especially in a city like dubai you've got all the choices in the world uh on, on, on your phone, on the top of a single button. Um, but the flip side to that coin is it's a lot easier these days to get carried away mm-hmm. with your choices and the amount of food that you eat. So caloric restriction is probably the easiest thing. Uh, well, I say that it was actually quite difficult. To- it's very difficult. But, <laughs> yeah. but, 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 but in terms of identifying something quick, that would be your go-to. And does that need to be a fasting? Sure. So, you know, uh, caloric restriction, um, intermittent fasting, there are different ways of doing it. Um, I, I've never been in the camp of uh, prolonged fasting over three to four days. Oh, I think that's, I think, you know, scientifically there are some benefits to that. Um, but the reality is it's just not practical, is it? Oh, or enjoyable. <laughs> so, because so I'm conscious we're running out of time, Ali. So to the supplement side, sure. what have you introduced in, in really addressing what was lacking in yeah. terms of supplement offering? Sure. So I think that, if I go back to how we started as a business, one of the challenges that I faced personally as a consumer was um, having confidence in what I was buying online. Because supplements ain't cheap. Supplements are not cheap. Um, more often than not, um, a lot of vendors uh, don't necessarily share uh, sort of third-party testing certificates. Mm, so lack of transparency. So there's lack of transparency in the testing, in the supply chain. Um, a lot of vendors... You're not entirely clear 
who the founders are, what the ambitions are. Um, so certainly for me, uh, that was the first um, sort of stumbling block uh, as I navigated that world. Um, so, you know, in effect, what I'm saying is a lot of a lot of the reasons why I started Five Score was pretty selfish, just really to <laughs> secure myself. Some of the best business ideas are solving a problem, and sometimes you're solving a problem for yourself, and now other people can presumably benefit. Yeah. So what's in yours? Um, so, uh, again, we're a young business, so we've only just started over the summer. Um, we've rolled out uh, a couple of supplements to date, um, but it'll be the first of uh, hopefully many. Uh, so the two the two uh, compounds that we've launched, uh, firstly, is NMN. Okay, uh, this is where things are going to get scientific. Uh, I'll try. I'll try to keep it, Thank you, you know, conversational. So, <laughs> so NMN st- stands for nicotinamide mononucleotide. Um, uh, what is it, and what does uh, it do for the aficionados? Um, so, uh, I, I need to take a step back. So, um, there's an important coenzyme in your body that's called NAD plus. Um, and that's critical uh, for pretty much every reaction in your cells. So every every single one of your 37 trillion cells that you have today uh, needs NAD plus to survive. Without NAD plus, um, you would probably uh, die in under a minute. Um, there are ways to increase NAD levels in the body as you age. So the challenge is uh, when you're say, 50 years old, the levels of NAD in your body are half uh, of that of a 20-year-old. Uh, and that leads to a lot of sort of degradation in um, your health and longevity, your cells' ability to fix DNA, uh, repair mechanisms, um, uh, and all the rest of it. So there's a lot of interest and study in terms of maintaining healthy NAD levels. You've probably come across um, NAD uh, IV drips, mm-hmm. very popular. I, can I be honest? Yeah. I, I tried one. I didn't notice any difference. Yeah. I've never had one personally. Yeah. Um, so the thing, the, the problem with the drips is, well, first of all, they're not practical. You're not going to have a drip every day. <laughs> um, uh, and secondly, there's um, there's not that much scientific study around actual drips and IV and how that impacts. Um, the best way to raise NAD levels naturally is, again, through exercise, calorific, calorie restriction, uh, and a nutritious diet. Um, but then over and above that, you can supplement with certain precursors that the body breaks down to form NAD. Plus, an NMN is one of those precursors. Um, again, it's, it's one of many tools in the toolbox. So without the first part, uh, it's not a silver bullet. Um, so you do need to sort of de- deliver a holistic lifestyle change. Can I ask then, as you said, you're a new company. How are you measuring things? I guess, you know, is there enough time to say you've got a kind of a track record and success with the supplements? Sure. Um, so in terms of the actual production, uh, we've partnered with a uh, GMP certified lab facility in the UK. Uh, and they've been around for 50 years. Great business. Uh, that is family-run, um, and they produce uh, the, our supplements to the highest standards. In terms of uh, understanding how it impacts uh, your life and how you can uh, measure that, obviously the challenge is it takes a lot of time to understand if supplementation increases your longevity. Mm-hmm. Right, And I guess one day, <laughs> if I pass away, I'll, I guess if I'm being honest with myself, I'll never know if I could have lived longer. Yeah, it's very hard to find that kind of counter argument, isn't yeah. it? Um, but I guess it's about taking control, looking at the numbers and thinking, okay, I'm going to boost my chances by doing ABC. Sure. So, uh, you know, to date, there's been about 13, 14 human clinical trials uh, around uh, NMN and supplementation. Um, you know, the first thing to say is that it is uh, completely safe um, as a supplement, Um Secondly, uh, there are studies that indicate uh, its ability to increase NAD levels in your blood. Um, And again, uh, alongside a holistic lifestyle, uh, the theory uh, is that as you live uh, longer, uh, you remain healthier uh, with your NAD levels. I've got a couple of questions on the text line for you. One's from Mal saying, when is the best time of day to take supplements and does it matter? Quick answer, Ali. Uh, Everyone's different. Yeah. That's the quick answer. Um, 
So I know I would I would recommend everyone to uh, consult with their doctor for their own medical condition. And Taylor's saying, um, I've been checking out the supplements and noticed that NMM supplements are significantly more expensive than NAD plus one. Why is that if NMM is the precursor? Uh, well, that's a great question. Um, so to make the NMN uh, is a lot more expensive in the lab uh, compared to the NAD. Um, again, you can't ingest NAD plus uh, in supplement form. Uh, your body will simply not absorb it. It's just too big a molecule. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why they they do it in drips. Um, but from from the perspective of actual supplementation, the NMN uh, is a lot more complicated to produce in a stabilized form that you can ship, you can store, uh, you can consume, um, and you know have it part of your toolkit. Thank you so much. It's been really interesting to hear your story and uh, again your. Your, your selfish problem-solving ways for the benefit of humanity, potentially. Ali, for anyone that does want to find out more um, and, of course, ask you a team any questions, what's the best way of getting in touch? Uh, you can reach out to us uh, on our website. Uh, you can reach out to me um, uh, on, on my email, ali at fivescore.com. There you um, go. More than happy. If you want to send me the send me the word Ali, let's keep it easy. On four zero zero one, I will send you the website for Five Score Labs. So you can have a look and do some of your own reading. We'll catch up in fifty years when you and I will both be kicking around. Hopefully, sounds like a plan. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd love to. I'd love to. <laughs> hopefully, before that, <laughs> Ali Tarek, really, really appreciate your time. marking breastfeeding week uh, talking about why it's celebrated now with the senior lactation consultant at Corniche Hospital it's part of the Abu Dhabi Health Services company Seha and a subjury of Pure Health Group Gabriella Shat joining us live on the line how are you Gabriella? Fine thank you hi Helen thank you for having me celebrating National Breastfeeding Week. Thank you for joining <laughs> us I'm not going to lie I find breastfeeding a quite a difficult and emotional topic to talk about because it was something that I struggled with an awful lot especially with my first baby and I really wish that I'd had maybe some more support maybe some more confidence maybe some more awareness around it and I wondered if you could perhaps talk about the theme of this year's campaign and why it's important to have a national breastfeeding week um yeah I can understand, yes, I agree with you that breastfeeding can be a very emotional experience. And this is why we do the campaign. Uh, every year we have a different theme in conjunction with the World Breastfeeding uh, Week, um, which will choose different, every year a different uh, uh, theme. So then we can cover as many challenges of breastfeeding as we have. So this year theme for uh, for breastfeeding week is related to making a difference for working mothers, and uh, we uh, we try to raise awareness on a working mother being able to continue to breastfeed when she goes back to work or school. Oh, that's a that was a big one for me because I stopped breastfeeding and pumping when I went back to work because I went back after three months, um, like like many mums here in the UAE. So it's about less, let's make breastfeeding and work work. Yeah. What are some of yeah. the challenges that you think new mums face when it comes to kind of combining those two very time-consuming worlds? Um, I think uh, some of the challenges would be the support provided by the workplaces. Um, there, um, and many mothers may not be aware of the maternity entitlements, like being many mothers may not have a maternity leave or a maternity leave as long as they're the paper long. Um, the breastfeeding hours, so there will be less working hours because they are entitled to have two hours of breastfeeding, breastfeeding hours for breastfeeding their babies or expressing their milk. And uh, the accommodation which a workplace may provide like uh, expressing room, breastfeeding room, so then the baby can be brought to them and they can breastfeed the baby where they are at room, so at work in special room. Mm-hmm. They may have special rooms to express men while they are away from the babies. Uh, some uh, some places uh, may have nurseries attached to the workplace, but in case if there are no um, accommodation like this uh, provided by the workplace, yeah, they can, uh, they can just express and um, just continue to breastfeeding and when they are at work they can continue to express at least 
depends on the number of hours they uh, they work. And uh, when they are going back home, they continue to breastfeed the baby. Can I Sorry, Gabriella, I just wanted to ask you about um, milk storage in terms of any guidelines on how long breast milk can be out of a fridge, how long it, you know, it can be kept safely in a fridge, how long it can be safely frozen. Do you have any guidelines there? Uh, yeah, we will tell the mothers that the normal, I mean, when they express the milk at room temperature, that it's safe to, to keep the milk at room temperature between four to six hours, I would say up to six hours. Then in the fridge, at the back of the fridge, not on the door of the fridge. It's safe up to five to six days. Mm-hmm. Uh, five to six days, some mothers may say which one is correct, five or six. And I will, uh, I will say that uh, CDC, it gives us up to six days. Um, and in the freezer, three months, if it's a small freezer, if it's a deep freezer, ice cream freezer, we can keep it up to one year even. Wow, gosh, okay. Um, One big challenge that I know a lot of working mums have is transitioning baby from boob to bottle. And unfortunately, that sometimes needs to be done quite quickly and it can be quite stressful because you know that you're not going to be with your baby all day long. Any tips there, I guess, from moving from exclusive breastfeeding onto weaning with bottle and and teat? Um, uh, Yeah, probably the best thing to do is... uh, the bottle to be offered by the father or somebody else than the mom, if it's possible, uh, because obviously the baby will prefer the <laughs> the breast instead of the bottle if the mother is offering the bottle to the baby. Uh, but if uh, if this is um, not possible or somebody from the family, some friends, uh, if it's not possible, we we can the mother can offer the the bottle when the babies are not very hungry. So. They don't expect. We don't. We uh, we offer something uh, new when they are very hungry. They will not. They are not getting to accept it very easy. Interesting. Okay. So yeah, the best thing would be to breastfeed first, and then by the end of the feed, offer the bottle as well. Gabriella, thank you so much for your time today. I, I don't want to sound weird by saying Happy National Breastfeeding Week, but to you thank and the you team there, thank you. Thank you so, so much speaking to us. They're from Corniche Hospital, part of the Abu Dhabi Health Service Company, Seha, and the Pure Health Group. Ms. Gabriella Schatz, Senior Lactation Consultant. This is Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan, groundbreaking science, life-changing nutrition. Joining us to answer my questions and yours is Dr. Camille Leman from ProPlan, that premium pet food company. Dr. Camille, what is it that you love about being a vet? How did you come to this job? Hello, Helen. Nice Hi. to meet you. And you. So I grew up in a farm, so I grew up among animals. And that was straightforward for me to mix that. I love school and science and I grew up among animals. So that was Aww. a perfect combination. And what about now? Do you have any furry friends in your life? Actually, now, yes. I just rescued a cat one week. I a have, week ago? Yes. Ooh, <laughs> this is a good topic because we have an awful lot of people who get in touch and say, you know, I want to foster, I want to, you know, I want to rescue, but there's worries. Sometimes they, you know, perhaps never had a cat before, or they don't know what you need to do to introduce a cat to the home, or all of those essentials. Okay, yes, tell us everything <laughs> we need to know, Camille. So for me, it was spontaneous. I, I fall in love with that cat in a park, so I took it home. But of course, you need to buy some things. So the priority is to buy litter box, and you don't need one; you need two. That's the rule. So number of pet plus one. So one cat means two litter box. If you have two cats, it's three. So be ready because we want to set things right right away to don't have any accident. And then, of course, you have to place it properly in your flat. So think of it before about the space and how you will arrange it because you need to place the litter box far from the food and the food far from the water. And you get really one chance because if you put everything, you make a cat corner, the cat don't like it. And if you move things along, it will be more change, even more difficult for your pets. So think ahead, how is your space at home, how you can arrange to have those Far from each other. The triangle. Exactly. Okay. All right. Now, I'm just trying to conceptualize this. Because um, I didn't, I knew cats can be very understandably particular about eating near where their toilet. The water thing is new to me, though. So I'm not asking you to tell us exactly about your home, but how have you configured those three stations? So you're right. Cats are very particular about water because they come from the desert, so they don't drink a lot by themselves. And if you put the water close to the food, 
they don't like it. Instinctively, it means the water is close to cadaver. So it oh. might be contaminated. So they will drink less. And cats are already bad drinkers, so we don't want that. So we're going to put the water far from the food. So for me, I put in my bathroom the litter box. Then um, I, I have a flatmate, so I, everything is my bedroom and my master bedroom. But uh, the food in one corner of our bedroom and the water in another corner. And we can put multiple water spots because cats are very particular about drinking. So we want to encourage right away. And have you done a water fountain or a bowl? What have you done? So for now, bone, but the, the water fountain is on its way. <laughs> <laughs> the order has been placed. And most important question, what have you called your cat? Asali. Asali. It's mean honey in Arabic and she has eyes like honey. So it was straightforward. Oh, this is gorgeous. <laughs> um, how old do you think Sally is? So she's around two years old. So first thing when you pick up a cat from the street is to bring to the vet to have an initial checkup. You cannot do vaccination, nothing at first, just general checkup and then bring home to monitor. And mm. only after, if she's healthy, we can vaccinate. We cannot vaccinate animal not healthy. Same, she will need to be neutered, but we cannot do it yet. Mm. And she's very thin. She needs to put up some weight, some nutrients. So let's talk that because... Um, it's, it is a big decision, isn't it, to take on an animal? For, for many, many reasons, you need to be thinking about, well, vet bills. In your case, yes. it's a little bit different. <laughs> um, you know, continuing that nutrition, the cost of vaccination, boarding, da, 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 da. When it comes to choosing what to feed that animal, age is, that's why I asked about, about age, because when do you start to transition from kitten or indeed puppy food into the adult food? How, can you tell us about some of those parameters, Camille? So first you have the kitten, he's just born, he will get the milk of the mother. If not, no mother, you will have to give uh, the milk by yourself, artificial milk. And then you will need to introduce slowly kitten food. So at the beginning, it's for first the first ever food. So it's very easy to digest with the right protein, right energy. And then the kibble, they got introduced. After one year old for cats, you can give adult food because cats... When they are young, they need more energy, more protein, more calcium. They're growing, growing, growing. Exactly. And uh, we've had a number of questions today, actually, and, and, and previously, about wet versus dry. And let's start with cats, then we can move on to dogs if you want. We're talking there about the importance of hydration and that cats are yes. not great at drinking. Um, does that mean that you tend to favour wet or does it not really make a difference as long as they are mm. properly hydrated? So there is a wet food for the hydration, but as well because cats are neophobic when it comes to food. It means they don't like new food. So you need to get them used to right away for wet food because in the future, if they get any kidney disease, urinary infection, they might need wet food. And if they never got wet food in their whole life, yeah. they transition. Will, yeah, it's new, they will not like it. So get them used to it. Um, from the start, then you give it regularly or not, depends. We like to give it regularly because more water intake, but I know it's a cost as well, but at least get them used to young so mm -hmm. we will not uh, get issue when we are at the clinic and your vet tell you your cat needs to eat dry, uh, wet food now and he never did and he will just say no. Because <laughs> they are quite particular. Exactly. <laughs> um, and, and with dogs, what, what kind, does it depend on the breed when you transition from puppy to adult or does it not really matter, Camille? It depends on the breed. So what we saw, uh, we classified it's a small breed, less than 10 kg, then medium until 20 kg and then large breed because they don't have the same growth. So large breed... Um, will be adult only at two years old. They oh. already look adult, but they are still teenager and growing. And what we saw when we take x-ray, we see their bones are still growing. And they need a slow growth. So you need to get food for large breed because it's less calorie. If you give them high calorie food, they will grow too fast. And for their whole life, they might have joint issue. God, this is a whole new world. Every day is a school day. <laughs> Dr. Camille was with us today from ProPlan. You're listening to Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan, where the number one ingredient is always high-quality salmon, lamb, turkey and chicken. Joining us on Pets and Vets today is Dr. Camille Lamal from ProPlan, that super premium pet food company. We've had a few questions in the past, Dr. Camille, about chonky cats. And now we've got a skinny dog. Jan's been in touch about her 14-year-old Maxie, a rescue who um, we think is part whippet and so thin. We've had her six years. She's happy and healthy, but at jabs last week, the vet said she's lost a kilo. She really can't spare a kilo. 
I've bought some complete food and some peanut butter. Um, what human food can I add to help the weight go on? Google tells me sweet potato, peanut butter and chicken with skin or fat, but would really welcome any expert tips. Oh, 14. So, 14. I wish it to uh, most pet parent. 14 is a beautiful age. This is a senior age. So I would advise uh, check it your dog. Is there any issues that he cannot absorb the nutrient? Obviously, she has been to the vet. I think she got some advice, but we want to be sure uh, there is not an issue why she's losing this kilo. And then with senior, we really want to insist on the senior food because like us, when we go older, we can absorb less. So the senior pet food is made to be easier to digest, easier on the gut and with a special nutrient because when you get older, you lose muscle mass as well. So those food is made specifically to prevent the loss of the muscle mass. Mm -hmm. And then some mineral are changed because the kidney are not that uh, healthy anymore. So we want to put less pressure on the kidney and uh, the liver. So a good senior food, not adult food, a senior food is important. And then about the human food. So introducing new food uh, can be a challenge for the dogs, uh, how it reacts. We don't want to trigger any diarrhea, any issue. It would be terrible. It would lost even more weight. Mm -hmm. So we can be cautious. Peanut butter, if you can add it to the kibble to encourage him to eat more, that's good. But it's not complete. If you give too much of the treat, we are recommending the treat should be only 10% of the calorie intake of the day. Okay. So keep it minimum. But if you want to add some chicken around the kibble to encourage the eating, we, let's do that. And let's do multiple small meals. That then it will sense. be easier on the gut as well. We've had lots of photos of Halloween pets today, Dr. Milne. I took our dogs to <laughs> what they called a Halloween party, which I did very much enjoy. Um, and one of the stalls there, they said, you know, it's no entry fee, but you know, please support the vendors. We bought a, a lick mat from a company called Lick Me, um, and it came with a dog-friendly peanut butter that had collagen in it that you kind of smear all over. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> The dogs are delighted with this. But it was interesting that it was a dog specific. Is that important? Yeah, it's important because uh, some of the human peanut butter have um, silitol, the fake sugar, and this is toxic for your pets. So very avoid those. And the dog specific, maybe it's easier to digest and don't show the ingredient, but be careful when you buy or you want to spoil your pet with your own peanut butter. Does it contain some fake sugars or sweetener? Mm -hmm. little because this is a big issue for pets. I've just found it. It's called, if you want to find them on Instagram, it is doglick.me. They've just come 100% organic and natural, nutritious pe uh, peanut butter for doggies. Um, but yeah, I like the idea of the lick mat as well. That's very good dis distraction. And if you go to work, you want to give them buzzy, some mental stimulation, that's very good. And as well, we use it in clinics when we need to do an injection. <laughs> Sneaky. <laughs> and sometimes they don't realize because they're so buzzy on this leaking mat. So okay. <laughs> we love it, yeah. Um, we have got so many questions for you, Dr. Mill. We're going to try and get through as many as possible. Um, we've not so much a question, but a comment from Tom saying, I have to stand near my cat Coco when he eats. Otherwise, he keeps meowing until I supervise his eating. <laughs> it sounds like a very needy cat. <laughs> just just want some company. Um, we've had a message here about a three and a half year old cat, Smokey. Sterilised uh, Scottish foal, but weighs about six kilos. We feed him the recommended dose of the Royal Cannon Sterilised Dry that's in the mornings and then wet food in the evenings with fresh cooked sardines on alternate days. How very Portuguese of you. Um, also has a couple of dry snacks in the afternoon. How do we reduce his weight? Because with age, we feel he might get joint pain. Yeah, it is uh, good to um, work on the issue right away. So uh, this is not only what you feed, but how you're feeding. Uh, most of cats here are indoors. So we need to keep them busy at home and the best I would say is to buy those slow feeder balls or you can do it at home by having this egg box and you put the kibble there so it's less easy to eat and overeat because the indoor cats typically eat out of boredom. It's so easy. The ball is there. They wake up from the nap. Oh, what to do? Let's eat. And they go eat there in their ball. It's, it's like me. <laughs> <laughs> we should work. We are working for our food. They should work for their food. So get a slow feeding ball. So for every kibble, they need to grab it with a paw and this will make them eat less. And since the cat is young, what you can do, easy trick, is just place the ball on a higher surface because it's proven if the ball is not just down there so easy to reach, if they just have to jump to eat, they will eat less. Mm -hmm. Oh, I like that. I hope that helps. Um, are you ready for a contentious question? 
What are your view on the raw food diet? Um, Emma's, Emma's dogs are seven. I mean, I can tell you my thoughts, which is I, I'm not brave enough to do it because I'm not a scientist. <laughs> so I'd rather go for something that has been researched and put together by experts. But I know an awful lot of people uh, want to perhaps control a little bit more. You know, with your kind of scientific hat on as a, as a vet, what's mm. your take? So this is a trend, the raw food diet. And usually when some people feed raw food and raw food and have been feeding raw food for years, I will just help them with some tips and not go for kibbles because it's too much of a jump for them. I will still mm. mention, but uh, better to make it safe. So there is different kind of raw food and different community around it. Uh, what I would say as a vet to make it safer. So you need to be prepared with the cost and buy not the minced meat because the minced meat, even for us, it's more of a, a sanitary risk. Uh, the outside bacteria in the inside, this is the best growth for bacteria. So if you buy raw, buy the cut meat. Yeah. And then I know you want it raw, but still it would be great to just put it some second in the boiling water, just that the surface outside is uh, cleaned because uh, the, the bigger risk is from the outside of the meat. And then it's very hard to make a balanced diet. So please meet with the vets that do nutrition that can help you to balance because what we saw, it will not show right away. If your pet is still a puppy, then it will show deficiency. But if it's an adult, even you will make blood check. So you imagine you don't give any calcium to this dog. You will take his blood. You will see calcium normal level in his blood because it takes time. Mm -hmm. The body is compensating. And when we will see the, the blood having abnormalities, it's already too late. So the blood tests actually are not reliable when it comes to raw. So you can still feed raw. I just advise put it like two seconds. This piece, don't buy minced meat. This piece, two seconds in boiling water. The inside, I promise, will still be raw. That's a bit better. Uh, if it's raw eggs, um, the white of the eggs having some... Um, you, you should cook the white. Yeah. Because there's some molecules that prevent absorption of vitamins. So we see B1 deficiency. Oh, so, I mean, it's so complicated. I'd, it is very complicated and very expensive. Scoop it from the bag rather than <laughs> buying a steak. We are talking all things animal this afternoon. Joining us live in the studio is Dr. Camille Lamal. This is Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan. We're going to have a bit of a quick fire round on the text line this afternoon. Dr. Camille Lamal with us from ProPlan. Um, and on hand to answer your questions. Are you ready? Yes. Yes, chef. <laughs> <laughs> um, Bella says, how often should a cat's ears be cleaned? So actually, you don't need to clean them with Q-tip or inside because it's microvillae that will naturally bring the serum, cerumen outside. So if you clean too often, you will perturbate these general mechanisms and you can create problems. So you can clean the outside. You can take a, a, a cotton, not the ones that are making little residue, but a cotton that can hold itself and you clean only the outside. If there is no issue, no need to perturbate and create issue. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, sometimes it's better just to... Keep it simple. Keep it simple. Yes. Um, and Dwayne's been in touch. My pet question is, I need to Google this. I have a toxrin, a Chihuahua Cane Terrier <laughs> called Disney. She's been using the pee pad for the last three years and suddenly is terrified of it. We'll literally pee next to it. I've tried changing the container, um, spray, providing real grass, removing it. Still the same result. How can I get her to using it instead of the floor next to it? So it's a very complicated issue. Maybe it's behavioral so then there is expert from that we have dr Catherine in abu dhabi we have in uh, the italian vet some behavior but what you can try so you should take the prem quick enough because after three weeks it will become an habit and it will be much more complicated for you to solve the issue maybe the way you clean the urine uh, you need to use uh, the spray the enzymatic spray it's the best because sometimes we use some cleaners we don't smell it, but our pets are much more sensitive. They smell 30 times better than us. And that can be a trigger for him. I don't like this smell. Let's spray on top to mask this smell. Mm. So be careful with what you use to clean. And at the beginning, multiple spots for your pet to pee at the right place. So make a lot just for temporary to get him used to peeing on the right pad. And after you will be able to move back maybe to one but okay, uh, Dwayne, I'm going to send you the details for those experts that Dr. Camille just recommend, recommended. Dr. Catherine Yuan, I think probably the best qualified behavioral vet in the UAE. She's um, she's absolutely amazing. And in the meantime, 
great advice. Thank you, Camille. Um, Asma says, we've rescued a cat who has the flu. Uh, we have two cats of our own. We took him to the vet, have isolated him, and now with medication. What precautions are needed? So it's highly infectious indeed. So when you touch your rescue cat, uh, very clean your hand properly. And uh, you need to give it some time. So the flu is a virus. And what we know is a virus, uh, you cannot give antibiotic. You just have to wait. Uh, if you give proper nutrition, proper stress-free environment, which is better than the street or if he was in the shelter. So he will be in a good home. He will build his immunity and fight the flu. So you need to give it some time. And meanwhile, um, keep it isolated and wash yourself properly. Mm-hmm. It's been a whistle-stop tour. We've run out of time. We haven't run out of questions. So anyone that's been in touch over the last um, hour, um, I will put those questions in the pot for next week's Pets and Vets. Dr. Camille, thank you so, so much. I just have to say what everyone's thinking. Your accent is just so gorgeous. <laughs> I've just sat here like wrapped listening to you. Merci, Hélène. Um, <laughs> thank you so, so much. It's been really lovely to hear about my goodness, what we need to be considering from puppy and kittenhood all the way through gaining weight, losing weight and everything in between. Thank you. Thank you, Ellen. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.